0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Martin Lund, who co-edited with Sean Gines Unstable Masks, Whiteness and American Superhero Comics. This is published in 2020 by the Ohio State University Press in a specific series titled New Sons, Race, Gender and Sexuality in the Speculative. I'm delighted to welcome Martin to the podcast and ask him to tell me a little bit about himself and how he and Sean came to this particular project. Hi, Martin.
0: Hi, Lily. So, a little bit about myself uh, <laughs> always puts me on the spot. Um, so, I am currently a senior lecturer in uh, religious studies at Malmo University, where I teach uh, future religious education students uh, about the thing some of us call religion. Uh, I uh, got my PhD from Lund University, no relation, uh, in uh, 2013 on a a dissertation called Rethinking the... I'm I'm blanking on the title. Rethinking the Jewish Jewish Comics Connection, um, which was about um, comics as read in relation to... Histories of identity formation in uh, the United States um, among Jewish Americans and in majority American society. Um, after I got my my PhD, I was a visiting research scholar and a Swedish Research Council International Postdoc at uh, Linnaeus University in Sweden and at the Gotham Center for New York City History at uh, CUNY Grad Center in. New York City, where I was working on a project that I'm currently trying to finish up, which is about representations of uh, New York in uh, American comics, and how belonging and identity, place identity, space identity, is constructed and framed in those comics. Uh, and while I was in in the U.S., um, Sean got in touch with me and we started talking on social media. And we started talking about things we wanted to do, things we had done, things that we felt were were sort of, I guess, needed, I think is how we, we probably frame it and how we frame it in the introduction to, to our book. Um, and I had been working on issues of whiteness from when I started my dissertation, basically. Uh, in relation to various forms of, um, uh, of comics. And I wanted to do something that was more focused on that, uh, on whiteness specifically. And we got to talking and we decided, cause he also wanted to do more of that kind of work. Uh, So we got to talking and we decided that an edited volume was probably the best way to sort of get that ball rolling. There was not a lot written about whiteness and superheroes at the time. There's still not, but there's more. Um, So we put together a uh, a call for papers and we contacted some people we knew who we thought might be interested in, in working on this uh topic with us and so we put together a a uh roster of of scholars who were all interested in in what we were interested in talking about and for the same reasons we assume that we were interested in talking about them so i guess that's how how we got started with that how that how it came to be
1: and one of the points that you make in the introduction and that you just also cited in in talking about this is that there there really wasn't a lot that was written about whiteness and comics in particular, but superheroes specifically. Um, and and I, I saw that, you know, sort of clearly underlined in the introduction and in some of the chapters themselves by a number of the authors. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, this absence in terms of like comic studies itself, um, and and what we're talking about in terms of you know again sort of cultural studies here? I guess in a, in a sense
0: the point that we make in the introduction that um, I bring up and you bring up is sort of the point that keeps getting made in whiteness studies um, that. So there is this idea that itself has also been been challenged for for good reason. But basically, there is this idea that whiteness is invisible. That whiteness is because it is sort of in 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 the world, the part of the world where I'm sitting, and the part of the world where you're sitting in. Well, the the U.S. and Europe, uh, especially, but. Um, Many other places as well. Whiteness is sort of everywhere and it is assumed uh, to be the norm, the normative, the neutral. Um, And so it's often missed by people who think they are white or who are told they are white. That we don't really see it that much uh, because. On the one hand, it is so normalized, so naturalized uh, as for a long time, basically the baseline for human experience. Uh, And at the same time, um, it sort of works that way by not being visible, by not being spoken about the power and privilege that comes with whiteness can sort of do what it does unopposed. Um, and that is, so mo- mostly this is, it, the invisibility mostly is a thing for people who think they are white or who are told they are white. I know um, John Jennings in his introduction to uh, Frederick Adama's, Frederick Aldama's, uh Latinx superheroes talks about seeing, like growing up, uh, I think he says uh, poor black and southern. There was nothing, like, he did not, he didn't have a lot to choose from in terms of what to identify with, because everything, everywhere <laughs> was just white. So, the like, the the point about whiteness is invisibility there is that it's invisible for some people, and for other people, it is painfully visible. Um, and in recent years, uh, recent, I guess, decades by now, there has been a lot of of study, uh, of representations of, of Black people, of, of uh, Latinx people, of people of color um, in superhero comics. But there's not been much study about what they sort of are presented as different from. Because you, you talk about Black superheroes, you talk about Latinx superheroes, Muslim superheroes, but there's never really any white superheroes. Because white superheroes are just superheroes. White superheroes get to be superheroes without qualification, and that is sort of something that we wanted to um, bring to the fore and hopefully into the conversation, the field or the the area of, of superhero studies—not capitalized, just studies of superheroes—not uh, necessarily as its own. Feel because I don't think it should be, but um, to make make sure that we're not continuing to not talk about the white elephant in the room.
1: Quite literally, the white elephant in the room. <laughs> um, and and what you also noted in terms of your doctoral work, um, as well as what any number of the authors talk about in in the book, is also the the narrative arc of the superhero um, is is one that is sort of inscribed with this whiteness, but it's n- rarely unpacked as that that the kind of superheroes that grew up in the United States um, fighting the Nazis or communism um, or bad bad whomever's. Um, are also cast in a certain way that reinscribes this kind of understanding of whiteness without challenging it. Can you talk a little bit about how we should think about that?
0: So, one of one of the I think best or most like obvious examples of that in recent years is, so we've seen this meme going around uh, because, yes, Captain America punched Adolf Hitler in the face on the the cover of his first appearance. So we've seen this meme go around, you know, Captain America's been punching Nazis since 1941. And yes, he has. And then we can talk about historicizing that cover because there are so many signals there that point to uh, fears about the fifth column, not, as many people say, uh, an argument to go into the war for the U.S. to enter the war. But that's a different book project. Uh, but yes, Captain America has been punching Nazis since 1941. But if you read those comics, what you're also seeing is a lot, a lot of anti-Japanese racism. There are, the way the so-called japa Nazis, a term I think that was coined in Captain America comics, are drawn they have sometimes have fangs they have clawed fingers like just virulent racism and we can't forget that either because that's an important part of this history like yes captain america was then and still today is punching nazis uh explicit white supremacists but those comics were also full of explicit racism and they continue to be if not explicitly racist Engaged in and reproducing structural racism all the time, and so you 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 uh, tapped into something that I've been looking at more and more recently too. Um, you know, whoever's defined as bad, because superheroes, these stories, they make a, they make big splashy claims about fighting for the good, the good, which is not a neutral term. It's a political term. Who gets to be viewed as good or not is not self evident. Uh, It is ideologically, socially, culturally contingent. It's historically shifting notions of good. Um, And we need to ask that question whenever we look at these superheroes when they make the claim about fighting for the good about having a, 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 a pro-social mission about working for uh, for truth justice in the American way we have to ask good for whom who is truth who's America <laughs> because there's not one America there's not one good and often often what we're what we see once we start asking those questions is that they're fighting for the good of, of white Americans they're fighting for, Fighting to uphold the now late capitalist status quo. So we we see that in in the continued majority of of, of, of superheroes being white men. We've seen moves to change that, and some of that is probably uh, pretty cynical from from the company's perspective. We've seen a lot of big flashy announcements that now this new character is going to to arrive and we'll have representation and that's that's an important thing for a lot of people to have that representation but it we also often see the rug sort of pulled out from from under that once the the novelty novelty wears off or it turns out that oh this isn't profitable after all um so there's this, this like, we need, to, we need to be careful, I think, uh, as scholars about how we talk about these, these characters and to ask questions even about the things that we might personally like about these characters. Because going back to where I started here, yes, Captain America punched Nazis, but he was also, his stories were also really, really racist um and and that's sort of a, a through line in much of much of the history of these characters that we call superheroes
1: and and when we talk about superheroes, obviously, you know we all know the sort of construction of of the tale, right that there's a threat from a Nazi or Thanos or whomever the or and 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 so. And and the superhero has to defeat, or superheroes have to defeat the bad guy, gal, it, um, and restore order, um, and and so this is the narrative construction that we understand is pretty endemic in the comics, and the films, and the TV shows, and all of the things that are sort of associated with our understanding of superheroes. Um, But as you and your authors make clear in quite a few places, and as other scholars have noted in terms of the comics, the first superhero movie, possibly in the United States, was not where everybody thinks, but um, perhaps was a little bit earlier and was known as Birth of a Nation. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how that film um, depiction also fits within this sort of understanding of the invisibility of whiteness as well.
0: I'm not sure I would
1: talk about that
0: movie necessarily, or actually I could, I can in a way, um, but not necessarily maybe as, as uh, talking about the, the invisibility of whiteness or not only that, because that movie is, um, When it was made, it was made to celebrate white supremacy. It was um, a white supremacist tale about dangers to whiteness, uh, specifically to white women in this case, to sort of showcase that it's not just the present, but also the future in a way that is in danger, um, as it were. And I mean that movie was it was the first movie to be screened in the White House. The the president at the time absolutely loved the movie. Yes, um, no,
1: Woodrow Wilson was was like that.
0: Yes, Woodrow Wilson was like that. <laughs> um, so in that case, maybe I'm not sure that it's the best example of the invisibility of whiteness, because whiteness here in that movie sort of is is foregrounded in in a way that it maybe rarely is not that it doesn't happen a lot like we have today um just a few a couple of months ago i think in april um tucker carlson was vehemently defending his youth of uh the term replacement based in the uh, the great replacement uh, conspiracy theory um, about how elites are willfully trying to replace white populations with non-white populations in the West. Um, so we keep seeing that and, and the white genocide uh, conspiracy theory as well. Also very clearly foregrounding uh, whiteness under threat. And and these, these conspiracy theories lead to a lot of, lot of violence, um, verbal, psychological, and, and physical
1: violence. And we um, do, I mean, we also see it in terms of the appropriation of um, the images from superheroes. Um, specifically, I'm thinking about the way that the images from the Punisher have been adopted by various law enforcement individuals Um, and it was demonstrated, it was seen, um, in the insurrection on January 6th by a number of them so that there, there are appropriations that people make with, with regard to not only the superheroes themselves, but particularly the fact that they are fighting to defend America.
0: Yeah. And there's, I mean, in a sense, yes, I guess it is, um, it is appropriation, but also on the other hand, the texts themselves give readers a lot to to work with in that direction. It's not, uh, and that's something that I've been looking at a lot lately too, in terms of this good and and bad. Uh, both like the comics gators and the people who who use the Punisher um, icon to to make their claims about. You know, defending America or 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 stopping replacement or, or or you know touting blue lives matter. It's not as if there's no grounds for them to make an argument that this this is in line with the text based on how they read them. Um, I'm in the middle of of uh, watching the the Netflix Punisher. Right? And there is this discussion about Frank Castle's code. He doesn't kill cops. He doesn't kill people who don't deserve it. So that makes it okay, I guess. Like, and I'm pretty sure that right where I am right now, one of the few people who has questioned, like, does him having a code make him any different? I, I'm pretty sure he's about to die. Uh, to be sort of punished for daring to question the right, the inherent rightness of, of what Frank Castle does. But that's that's a that's speculation based on having having uh read and watched a lot of these things um and then on the other hand so we have if we have the comic skaters on the one hand or like people on on one end of the political spectrum they see i think this is the way to read these comics that my version is the the character and then on the other side on the other side of the political spectrum, the people that are, are characterized as SJW, oh, SJWs, so, social justice warriors, by comic skaters, I see a lot of the same. Like, no, they, the the superheroes have always been social justice warriors. Um, the X Men is um, uh, an allegory for for like the civil rights movement.
1: And and so in this regard,
0: yeah, I have things to say about that too. But so, but like this, this is the way I read them. That's the way the characters are. But the characters are nothing without what we bring to them. Um, so, okay, I finished what I was trying to say there. Uh,
1: No, I mean, I I just I wanted to sort of ask you a bit more specifically about the book itself, because you do you have these wonderful and deep chapters where the the authors are interrogating different aspects and different superheroes um, in terms of trying to surface, not even trying, but successfully surfacing sort of how whiteness is present In so much of what we see in the superhero narrative and in the superheroes themselves. And as you say, you know, who the bad people are or who, you know, who is being compared to the superhero? How is the hero super compared to everybody else? Um, Can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of that research? That's in the book about how the heroes themselves are distinguished. And that also figures into our understanding of like racial hierarchy. So I think on, on that point,
0: I think the, the first chapter is probably the most uh, most illustrated um, marked for failure about um, Captain America and about how um, now I've, I've dropped his last name, Sam, Sam Wilson. Uh, takes over the mantle of Captain America from from Steve Rogers and how he is constantly compared to Steve Rogers. like he's not allowed to be himself as Captain America. Uh, and how there's a lot in, in these comics that sort of play on Sam Wilson's blackness as a means to disqualify him as Captain America. And in the end, um, these storylines are resolved and, and Steve Rogers takes back the mantle or shield in this case. But I think that very clearly, or most clearly, I think, or in, in the book, illustrates the like the, the comparison aspect. Uh, the way characters are measured again, like superheroes of color are measured against white superheroes as, as the, uh, the norm.
1: And, and so I, you know, I, I always ask editors of um, collected editions volumes um, not to tell me, you know, which were their favorites because that would be inappropriate. Um, but, as you were, you know, sort of getting these chapters in by the authors, which chapter most surprised you or what sort of analysis that came that came through most surprised you um, as you and your co-author were sort of reading through these and and putting the book together?
0: I mean, that's it's a very hard, um, hard question to answer. I Editing books always is—it's a slog. <laughs> it, it it always is, um, but it is always a pleasant slog to me. Reading through, asking questions, and like working working with authors to sort of do what we as editors can to help facilitate their best work is is always. Uh, a pleasure. So it's like, it's hard. I know you, you started off saying that you don't want to ask people to play favorites, but I still feel like I am to, no matter what I say, but I, I, I'm not, but one of the things that, one of the chapters that really stood out for me in terms of um, presentation, argument, um, and just sheer, I guess, whoa experience for me personally. Um from reading the first draft is one of the ones that i remember most strongly so i assume that, that is what what also uh struck me hardest at the time is olivia hicks's chapter on uh, cloak and dagger which covers multiple interesting and fruitful angles like it, 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 it approaches or she approaches the material in her chapter in different ways, teasing out different partial conclusions towards the, like the final uh, final image of, of the Cloak and Dagger comics that she offers back to us as readers in a way that it doesn't get this. Like, so it's, it's just a well-structured chapter with a well-structured argument. That and I, 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 I always like, and I always um, try to encourage these kind of multi-perspective analyses. So seeing seeing that just jump out at me from, um, it definitely it definitely uh, struck me when it already when it came in.
1: And in this, go ahead.
0: No, but yeah, there, there are a lot of uh, other chapters that I could say similar similar things about. Um,
1: um, which which are the other ones also possibly, again, it's, it's, it, it's not sort of saying this chapter is better than another chapter, but sometimes authors, when you're doing an edited volume, of course, say something that you'd never thought of. That's what I've found. And you read their work, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can totally rethink that. Was there another chapter that sort of did that for you?
0: So I mean, aside from from uh, from Olivia Hicks's chapter, I think because Cloak and Dagger is is material that I had considered and looked at, you know, working with in in relation to representations of New York, for example. Uh, but I don't think the Vision and Wanda. As in Esther de Dawes, uh, and I apologize to her for probably mangling her name there. Um, her chapter on um, like normalization and domesticity in in relations of vision as a, a cyborg, um, I was not expecting that. And again, I think she she pulls it off absolutely marvelously and presents a very convincing argument. And an argument that I know has had an effect on me because I recently watched the the Disney Plus, uh, Wandavision. *WandaVision*. And there were things that I would have have like noticed, thought about, uh, made made one of my many many notes <laughs> about. While watching, but I would not have watched that show in the same way if it weren't for her chapter.
1: And so it really did provide a kind of guiding understanding of what we were seeing presented in WandaVision, um, which, again, was a very interesting sort of twist on thinking about superheroes and and their use of power, obviously. Um, particularly sort of the, the white suburban housewife um, as, as part of it. Um, part, of our, part of my thinking about superheroes is that they also fit inside of the sort of American hero. And that's where I also think your discussion, many of the discussions of sort of whiteness is really relevant because we have this sort of stock of heroes that goes back to people like Huck Finn um, and Tom Sawyer. We also have, you know, sort of somewhat more contemporary ones, maybe like Luke Skywalker. Um, But there's also the way that the superhero narrative is a growth out of the Western, um, which is also very much about the white person's conquering of the frontier with law and order and establishing stability. Um, and some of the chapters, you know, sort of talk about this as well. Can you sort of loop together a little bit about why this is important to think about um, in our thinking also about comic book superheroes? Well, I don't,
0: what, what I'm immediately tempted to, 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 get into here might be a bit uh beside what is set in the in in the book but also immediately inspired by it but so what you what you're saying here is it's pretty important to note to mark that these characters that we 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 call superheroes and everyone defines them different there's no one definition uh of what a superhero is supposed to be um but like, if we look at superheroes in the way that most people probably think about them as characters like the ones put out by DC and Marvel and in their uh, their associated movies and television shows and whatnot, that's uh, sort of a, the, the most narrow way to, to view these characters. Even if we narrow it down to, to something that slim, we still cannot escape that they are not isolated. They were not created in a vacuum. Um, as many people have pointed out, for example, Superman, who is often called the, the first superhero, um, he's not a watershed. <laughs> like, There's a lot of stuff that goes into, into Superman. There was a lot of stuff that went into Batman, a lot of stuff that went into Wonder Woman, into the Green Arrow, into all of these figures that sort of helped coalesce the generic form formation of superheroes in its first iteration in what some people call the, the Golden Age. Um, like when there were characters who started to work uh, along similar tropes and conventions, um, they didn't just pop out fully formed. The characters were inspired by a lot of different things, including uh, Westerns, definitely in detective fiction and science fiction and horror and etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, And that like looking at Westerns, for example, and this idea of, of vigilante law and order, uh, regeneration through violence, there's so much of that in in these early stories even more than a lot of people uh i think know remember or care to know or remember like the early superman at one point threw an airplane after uh, fleeing enemies he was actively killing people and passively killing people because he was a supporter of the death penalty uh, and the early batman had a gun Like, one of the defining things about Batman now is that he doesn't use a gun. But read the earliest comics, and there is a gun. At one point, he steps on a man's neck, so it snaps, to sort of climb up a wall. Um, So superhero comics are violent today, but it's not like they're much more violent than they've ever been. the violence has always been there in support of what the the characters and ultimately the writers and the culture that they're in considers good and just. Um, so that I mean that's one of the way that we see one of the ways that we see superheroes as not a break but as in continuity with other narrative storytelling traditions.
1: And and in terms of the understanding of whiteness in speculative fiction, which is the overarching theme of the book, there was there's a discussion in the introduction of the whiteness of speculative fish, fiction as opposed to the speculative fiction of Blackness. And yes. I would love for you to talk a little bit about how that really is the umbrella of all the chapters in this book. Cause I found it to be pretty much the case.
0: Yeah. I don't know if that is, um, it's, it's interesting that it is the case because this is not something that we put out in, in like the call for papers that this is the, the arc that we're, that we're going for. Um, but we—I mean—we solicited, uh, we we called for uh, chapters on uh, on whiteness and, and superheroes uh, in in comics specifically, which of course is going to, you know, set a baseline. Um, and I guess in in a sense, we also set the baseline to sort of direct the reading of the rest of the book by bringing that out at the beginning but i mean we argue we argue in the introduction and we've we've touched on a a, a few times in in this uh in this talk too about how one of the things like these superhero narratives they keep changing with the times um Uh, The violence might be turned up to 11 at certain points and then dialed back down. There might be more horror. There might be more uh, psychologizing of the characters. There might be more focus on um, on emotion. Like Chris Claremont turned his X-Men into basically a soap opera. Um, Like all of these things might change. How how the stories are told, what stories are being told, about whom they're being told. But for all the changes that have been occurring in recent years in who gets to be a superhero, that we see maybe a slightly lower number of, or like percentage of of white men wearing the, the capes and tights and masks. But for all of that, the baseline is still there. Like they're they're still mostly white men, mostly straight straight white men, mostly able mostly able-bodied straight white men, mostly able-bodied straight white middle-class men. Like we, we still have this uh, this baseline that has not gone away. Um, and it's the same thing if we look in the credits. It's not only, and it's never been only straight like men writing but it still mostly is like um the the captain america comics that um osvaldo writes about in in his chapter in the first chapter in the book uh, i've always had the trouble here of of Never being able to remember the writer's the actual writer's name because in my head it always turns into Richard Spencer, which is not particularly particularly nice. It's called is it Nick Spencer I think yeah Nick Spencer, uh, white man writing about both the white male Captain America and the black male Captain America, uh, and that's going to you know affect what stories can be told and how they will be told um and that is is the case for uh, these sort of main let's call them main line like the the general big company storylines that sort of exist in the established um, established fictional universes and in a lot of the what uh, Jeff Clark calls revisionary superheroes uh, Watchmen, which a lot of people see as sort of a subversive um, comic, still working from the same same baseline. Uh, Garth Ennis is the boys, although it is one of the rare ones that actually makes the argument because, from what I can tell, Garth Ennis really hates superheroes. Uh, so the the Thor figure in his uh, in the boys is a. A bona fide Nazi, uh, but still the the baseline is still you know the white racial frame, and that you can tell from reading it. Um, and it's, in some cases, they the the writers manage to make whiteness visible in in productive ways, and sometimes in in in, in less productive ways when they manage to make them. Uh, make them visible. I don't know, for example, that uh, J. Michael Straczynski's uh, Supreme Power always succeeds in, in what I think he, he tries to, to do. Um, when he writes, so he he changes two of the characters from the original Squadron Supreme, from white men to black men, and then have them argue, basically, over proper ways of being black. Um that's a simplification, but there's 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 a lot of, of Malcolm X quoting going on, and it's perhaps not always the most appropriate thing for a for a white man to be writing about.
1: Um so in, in
0: that way that he does it.
1: And 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 so in, in that regard, again, and this is something that your authors and you and your co editor address, that it's not just the superheroes themselves, um, that we see on the, in the panels, but it's also who's writing them. Um, and, and in the case of the films and television shows, you know, who's producing them, who's directing them. And so it's coming from a viewpoint that has often been written by, created by, um, articulated by the artists also who, who draw the the panels are white and generally male. Yeah. So that, so that the, the, the sort of diversion or, you know, sort of what isn't the norm is still coming from a very much normalized in our acceptance of, you know, here are the people who do this work and they're pretty much white middle-class men.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, exactly. Like, so there is uh, this idea that is very, has been very common for I think at least 50 or so years now um, that in the X-Men Charles Xavier is supposed to be modeled on Martin Luther King and um, Magneto is supposed to be modeled on Malcolm X and to me no matter how you twist and turn that claim I just can't escape a a sort of whitewashing going on here. Martin Luther King was not an accommodationist uh, in the way that Charles Xavier is. Like the stories start out very much framed in terms of respectability politics. If only we behave as mutants, then they, ordinary humans... And there's a racial metaphor for you, Uh, because it's mostly, especially back then, like the streets of New York or wherever they are, mostly uh, people by white men in hats. Um, But they will accept us. Magneto is this power mad, originally unmistakably communist um, megalomaniac who is... um, Spouting mute, mutant supremacist rhetoric, Homo superior will, will will rule the world. And the further in you get, like the more they they dial up Magnet, Magneto's mutant supremacist evil. The more difficult it becomes to to credit the the Malcolm X reading, unless you are still viewing uh, Malcolm X through a lens of abject fear, All right? Uh, as a a, a creased. Revolutionary at best, which he wasn't.
1: And and your own research you were talking about at the beginning of the show is um, of the interview is also about the fact that early in the early days, in particular, a lot of the artists who and and authors who were writing these were Jewish Americans, um, and that this is also a way that they the the sort of jewish americans and other hyphenated americans who became more white um in part the the stories themselves um you know allowed for some of that that assimilation can you just talk a tiny bit about that
0: yeah i think allowed for and sprang from uh like a lot that's been written on the subject takes sort of takes it for granted that because they were Jewish American, they were writing as Jewish Americans first, uh, that superheroes were a response to the Holocaust, which Superman was first published in 1938, but probably the first story was made already in 1934. It doesn't really, it doesn't really fully, fully click there because It was still a few years before the what the Nazis call the final solution was put in, you know, in motion. And it was even longer before it was known what was going on and even longer before it was generally believed. Um, And like there's this idea that Superman is a Moses figure. Because he was Moses was sent away from his family and he grew up, he was raised by other like another another people, another group of people. Um and then he you know saved his people. But it was his people he took like he took Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt. Superman does not do that. So in one, uh, in one of these uh, Moses comparisons, someone, the the, the writer actually says, makes these points and then says, it's like, as if Moses had stayed in Egypt and changed the system from within. But if Moses had changed, stayed in Egypt, what is left of Judaism as we know it historically? Like the, the centrality of the Exodus narrative for uh for jewish self-understandings historically cannot be overestimated like the importance of um so what i did with my dissertation and that was then partly broken out in, into uh, a book about early superman too was to sort of read these books and 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 look at what these arguments are uh, are saying in our own time rather than about these comics and then i looked at the comics in i tried to look at them in historical context instead now jerry stiegel and joe schuster who co-created superman were weren't particularly religious but they were huge science fiction fans Um, so the question is like what what should we what we view as more valid uh, valued for them there Um, but also in in terms of like when they grew up when they were were telling these stories. On the one hand, um, many Jewish American communities, many Jewish American families, uh, cultural outlets and so on, were advocating assimilation, were advocating Americanization. And on the other hand, this is also a, a time when anti-Semitism in the U.S. reached a uh, historical height high point in the worst possible sense of the word. So we have these push and pull factors. So you're being told Americanize, you should become American, but also at the same time, like in their lifetime, there were immigration laws passed specifically, not just, but specifically also to limit Eastern European immigration into the United States because, uh, uh Eastern European Jews were considered incapable of assimilating. So you have this like this push and pull factor, you have this love for for this culture um and you know like you want to tell stories but you can't tell stories about people like the people you see around you because nobody's going to 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 buy that. From um so what then do you do? You tell a story that is more in the mold of what you're, what you're, uh, what you know, what you consume. But you sort of maybe shift to make, whether it is intentionally to to like making a, make an argument that we are also white or not, but like create characters who look familiar to you. So there's like Captain America is blonde and blue eyed. Superman is not. Clark Kent is not. So there's like this. Maybe this small shift towards this non idealized character working so clearly along the lines of the of the Roosevelt administration in the New Deal. So there and there's like another link like this, this new dealerism that was, again, not unique, but very widely embraced in Jewish American communities. And this continues a long time in these comics after other other groups, other voting blocs started sort of becoming dissolution with uh, with the New Deal. If you look at when uh, I don't know if it's 1939 or 1940, when when Captain Marvel Shazam was introduced, there's no there's none of that. Like it's uh, more focused on. Fifth columnist, which is also a big thing in the early Superman, but there's no New Dealerism, really, as far as I can remember, in the early Captain Marvel comics, and that was made by two two waspy creators in Minnesota, or so they're, they're like it's all. I mean, it's interpretation, it's speculation, but I think like if you look at these comics in their historical context, different interpretations might emerge.
1: Yeah, and I mean, as you as you said, you also uh, noted that you know there are different threats, there are different sort of um, depictions, but that ultimately we keep having the same the same presentation of superhero kinds and types. Um, so I wanted to ask you, as a concluding question, what are you working on now?
0: So I am working on a a couple of things. Um, most, most urgently, I am trying to, like I said, uh, finish up the, um, New York and comics project that I had, um, had started looking at, uh, and touching on similar, similar issues, but from another, uh, from another angle, um, starting in, in, in sort of Jewish New York comics will eisner's stuff uh lila court lila corman's Untersachen, um and and a few other things there and then sort of looking at comics that in a generous interpretation can be be likened to some of the major uh generic form formations that sort of became big after the first wave of uh, of superhero comics went away. Not Western comics because it's, it's the wrong coast, or the wrong side of, of, of the US. But so romance comics, looking at comics that deal with romance, relationships, uh, sex, and love. Uh, crime comics, gangsters and, and detective um, comics. Um, and horror and supernatural comics. Uh, comics that were published immediately after 9 11. And comics that sort of mediate on 9-11 in the years since. Uh, and then a concluding or a final uh, chapter about visions of New York futures. So utopia and dystopia comics set in New York. And all of these looking at like how how the city is is reproduced and who is is imagined as belonging or not.
1: Well, I would love to talk to you about it when the book comes out. So I, I hope you will let me know and we can we can do another conversation. Um I would like to thank Martin Lund for joining me. He is author with Sean Gaines. Gaines, Gaines sorry. Um, with Sean Gaines of Unstable Masks, Whiteness and American Superhero Comics published by Ohio University, the Ohio State University Press in 2020 in the New Suns series, which specifically is on race, gender, and sexuality in the speculative. And I'm sure one can purchase this at the Ohio State University Press's website. Thank you so much for joining me today, Martin.
0: Thank you for having me.